He was the most brilliant man who was ever born in the United States. By 18 months old, he was already reading the New York Times. By three years old, he had already learned the Greek alphabet and was reading Homer in Greek, of course. By six, he could already speak multiple languages, including English, French, German, Russian, Hebrew, Turkish, and some Armenian. It only took him about 24 hours to learn a new language. By eight, he had already invented his own language and then wrote a book about it, which was his second book that he'd written. And he was accepted into Harvard by age nine, but they made him wait because he was too young until he was 11 before he could start taking classes. He graduated at 16, and by then he was already teaching full-time. And his first lecture was at age 12 over the really difficult topic of four-dimensional bodies. Yes, not three-dimensional, four-dimensional bodies. And for those who could understand the lecture, they said it was one of the most brilliant things they'd ever heard. His name was William James Sidus. And by some of your faces, I can tell you've never heard of him before. <laughs> he died in 1944 at age 46. And when he died, he was working just a simple job as a menial clerk in a small New York office. He had tremendous gifts. The most brilliant people that we've ever seen. Incredible opportunities before him all the time. But he died unknown, largely having wasted it. Started really great. Ended not so great. Sounds familiar of our final judge this morning, doesn't it? With Samson. Someone given incredible gifts. Incredible opportunities. Incredible chances to be used mightily by God. And yet fumbles and doesn't exactly end how we might thought that he would. So what can we learn this morning as we finish looking at Samson in chapter 15 and 16 in the book of Judges? How can we learn to, to not waste our lives, to not waste the talents and the things that God has given us and instead end well? This morning we're going to see three principles um, that I think this passage has to teach us about how we can use what God has given us to end well. And so if you are able, if you have your Bible in front of me, go ahead and stand as we read from God's Word uh, the end of Samson's story. After some days at the time of the wheat harvest, Samson went to visit his wife with the young goat. And he said, I will go into my wife in the chamber. But her father would not allow him to go in. And her father said, I really thought that you utterly hated her. So I gave her to your companion. And isn't her younger sister more beautiful than she? Please take her instead. And Samson said to them, This time I shall be innocent in regard to the Philistines when I do them harm. So Samson went and caught 300 foxes and took torches. And he turned them tail to tail and put a torch between each pair of tails. When he had set fire to the torches, he let the foxes go into the standing grain of the Philistines and set fire to the stacked grain and the standing grain as well as the olive orchards. And the Philistines said, Who has done this? And they said, Samson, the son-in-law of the team knight, because he has taken his wife and given her to his companion. And the Philistines came up and burned her and her father with fire. And Samson said to them, If this is what you do, I swear I will be avenged on you. And after that, I will quit. And he struck them hip and thigh with a great blow when he went down and stayed in the cleft of the rock at Etam. And when the Philistines came up and encamped at Judah and made a raid on Lehi, then the men of Judah said, Why have you come up against us? And they said, Well, we've come to bind Samson, to do to him as he did to us. Then 3,000 men of Judah went down to the cleft of the rock at Etam and said to Samson, 
Do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over this? What then is this that you have done to us? And he said to them, As they did to me, so I have done to them. And they said to him, We have come to bind you, that we may give you into the hands of the Philistines. And Samson said to them, Swear to me that you won't attack me yourselves. And they said to him, No, we will only bind you and give you into their hands. We will surely not kill you. So they bound him with two new ropes and brought him up from the rock. When he came to Lehi, the Philistines came shouting to meet him. And then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and the ropes that were on his arms became as flax that has caught fire, and his bonds melted off his hands. And he found a fresh jawbone of a donkey. And he put his hand and took it, and with it he struck one thousand men. And Samson sang, With the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps, with the jawbone of a donkey, have I struck down a thousand men. And as soon as he finished speaking, he threw away the jawbone out of his hand, and the place was called Ramath-Lehi. And he was very thirsty, and he called upon the Lord, and he said, You have granted this great salvation by the hand of your servant. Now shall I die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised. And God split open the hollow place that is at Lehi, and the water came out from it. And when he drank, his spirit returned, and he revived. And therefore the name of it was called En-Hakur, that is at Lehi to this day. And he judged Israel in the days of the Philistines 20 years. And Samson went to Gaza, and there he saw a prostitute, and he went into her. And the Gazites were told, Samson has come here. And they surrounded the place and set an ambush for him all night at the gate of the city. But they kept quiet all night, saying, let us wait until the light of the morning, and then we will kill him. But Samson lay till midnight, and at midnight he rose and took hold of the door of the gate of the city and the two posts, and he pulled them up, bar and all, put them on his shoulders, and carried them to the top of the hill that is in front of Hebron. And after this, he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. And the lords of the Philistines came up to her and said to her, Seduce him, see where his great strength lies, and by what means we may overpower him, that we may be able to bind him and humble him. And we'll each give you 1,100 pieces of silver. So Delilah said to Samson, Please tell me where your great strength lies, and how you may be bound, and that one can subdue you. And Samson said to her, If they bind me with seven fresh bowstrings that have not been dried, I shall become weak and like any other man. The lords of the Philistines brought to her seven fresh bowstrings that had not been dried, and she bound him with them. Now she had men laying in the ambush in the inner chamber. She said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he snapped the bowstrings as a flood of flax snaps when it touches the fire. So the secret of his strength was not known. Then Delilah said to Samson, Behold, you've mocked me and told me lies. Please tell me how you might be bound. And he said to her, If they bind me with new ropes... That have not been used, I shall be weak and like any other man. So Delilah took new ropes and bound him with them and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And the men lying in ambush were in an inner chamber, but he snapped off the ropes like a thread. And Delilah said to Samson, Until now you've mocked me and told me lies. Tell me how you might be bound. And he said to her, If you weave seven locks of my head with the web and fasten it tight with the pin, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. So while he slept, Delilah took seven locks of his head and wove them into a web. And she made them tight with a pin and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he awoke from his sleep and pulled away the pin and the loom and the web. And she said to him, How can you say I love you when your heart is not with me? You have mocked me these three times and not told me where your great strength lies. And when she pressed him hard with the words day after day and urged him, his soul was vexed to death. And he told her all his heart. And he said to her, A razor has never come upon my head. I've been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me, and I shall become weak and like any other man. 
And when Delilah told her, saw that he had told her all his heart, she sent and called upon the lords of the Philistines, saying, Come up again, for he has told me all his heart. Lords of the Philistines came up and brought the money in their hands. She made him sleep on her knees, and she called a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his head. Then she began to torment him, and his strength left him. And she said, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. And the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza and bound him in broadened shackles. And he ground at the mill of the prison. But the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. Now the lords of the Philistines gathered to offer a great sacrifice to God, to God their God, and to rejoice. And they said, Our God has given Samson our enemy into our hand. And when the people saw him, they praised their God, and they said, Our God has given our enemy into our hand, the ravager of our country who has killed many of us. And when their hearts were merry, they said, Call Samson that he may entertain us. So they called Samson out of the prison, and he entertained them. They made him stand between the pillars. And Samson said to the young man who held him by the hand, Let me feel the pillars upon which the house rests, that I might lean on them. And the house was full of men and women, and all the lords of the Philistines were there. And on the roof there were about 3,000 men and women who looked on while Samson entertained. And Samson called to the Lord and said, O Lord God, please remember me. And please strengthen me only this once, O God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. And Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested. And he leaned his weight against them, and his right hand on one and his left hand on the other. And Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. And he bowed with all of his strength, and the house fell upon the lords and upon all the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed in his death were more than whom he killed during his life. Then his brothers and all his family came down and took him. And they brought him up and buried him at Zorah in the Eshtaol in the tomb of Manoah, his father. And he judged Israel for 20 years. The grass withers and the flower fades, but God's word stands forever. Let's pray. God, I ask that you would open up your word to us. And Lord, would your Holy Spirit come and illuminate it? Would you help these stories that came from so long ago that are funny and strange and different? Would they make sense? Not just so that we can understand it, but so that we can understand what you have to teach us in our own lives. And give me not my own words, but your words. We pray this in your holy and precious name. Amen. All right, you can be seated. So we're going to talk about three principles to end well that we learn from this story. And the first principle, if you're taking notes in your bulletin or however you like to do that, is that our gifts are not only for ourselves. That our gifts are not only for ourselves. This is something that we need to understand and it's something that Samson doesn't get. He's never really got it, but especially at these two chapters, he really doesn't understand this. Because what we see throughout all of this is that Samson is very focused on himself. There's a lot of eyes here. There's not very much God in the way that Samson talks, in the way that Samson's guided, in the way that Samson acts. So I'm going to start by giving you a summary of the, the first section here before we dive into it. Last week, Samson ended his wedding feast in a rage because the Philistines got his wife to find out the secret and guessed his riddle. So he went down to town and killed a bunch of Philistines and came back and then left. And that was how it, it ended. And so he's cooled off a little bit and he's come back. But everybody, including his father-in-law, assumed that he had divorced his wife. He wanted nothing to do with her. 
kind of went through with the wedding, but they didn't consummate the marriage. They didn't do anything else. So he thought, well, this is shameful. You've kind of abandoned her. I'm going to try and take care of her. So her father marries her to someone else. And Samson's mad again, and he doesn't blame himself for his own anger or his own actions. He blames the Philistines, who have nothing to do with it at all, but he's acting again kind of like a child, just blaming other people for his own misfortune, his own mistakes. So then he grabs a bunch of foxes, uses them to burn the Philistines, and then the Philistines escalate, and then they kill his ex-wife and his father-in-law, and so then he kills more of them, and then they kill more of them, and it just goes back and forth, back and forth, until the Israelites from Judah come to arrest Samson. He lets them arrest him, and then he kills a thousand Philistines with the fresh jawbone of a donkey, single-handedly, and then he kind of so thirsty, cries out to God for help, God answers him, and then it ends very strangely with him picking up city gates and just walking off, carrying them into a hill. It's kind of the first part of the story. What you notice about most of these is Samson isn't fighting for anything other than himself. These stories are strange and they're kind of weird and it's intentionally, I think, a little scattered and confusing. To like, why is he using foxes? Why is he carrying gates around? Why is his army with him? But he's not using them. He's just using a jawbone. They're just stories about how awesome and strong Samson is. And he's not fighting the Philistines to try and save his people. He's not fighting the Philistines because of what they've done to his nation. He's only focused on himself, on his own vengeance, on his own pride, on his own things. And we see a selfish focus post-wedding story again. He takes no responsibility for his actions whatsoever. He's blaming the Philistines. He's not even blaming his father-in-law. He's not blaming his wife. He's just blaming the Philistines. And it's funny how he responds. He doesn't care. His father-in-law is trying diplomatically to appease his anger, but he doesn't want to be appeased. And then the way Samson says this in in verse 3 of chapter 15, he says, well, this time I'll be innocent in regard to the Philistines when I do them harm. Which is also kind of some admitting that he knows what he did in the last chapter maybe wasn't so innocent or righteous or good. But this time it will be because they've really made him mad. Although we know, well, I haven't done anything. You're not innocent this time either. God's just using him even as sinfulness. And so he gets mad and he starts gathering up some foxes. Which is so bizarre and weird. Okay, how long would it take you to find 300 foxes? I saw one fox a couple weeks ago just downtown running around in Duncan, which I thought was strange. If I had to find 299 more of them, that would take me quite a long time. Okay, I just saw them. I didn't get very close, and then I lost them. So I could have just imagined it even. Okay, there's probably a lot more around where Samson is, but to find 300 foxes. Okay, and they're not staying still. So this is a very elaborate thing he is going on in that I imagine. text doesn't tell us this, but he's got to put them somewhere. So he had to build some kind of apparatus to hold the foxes. Then he's got to get, you know, at least 150 torches. That's a lot of wood. I don't know how many trees he's chopping down to find that. Tying the foxes' tails together with a torch in the middle of it. Then finally when he's ready, he lights all the torches on fire. And then he lets them out. Okay, that, what is that? Like that, right? That's, that's weird. Why is he doing this? He's just doing this selfishly. This is so bizarre. He's not gathering up Israelites to help him. Gideon gathered up 300 people and used torches and they saved Israel. Gideon just wants to, or Samson just wants to get 300 foxes. And all of that time he didn't think, hey, mate, these Philistines are real jerks. They've been oppressing us. Maybe we should fight up against them. He's like, no, this is the way I'll do it. He just gets angry. So the Philistines respond, they kill his ex-wife and 
Her father-in-law and Samson cares, but not really. His responsibility is not really concerned about them. In 7, he says, if this is what you do, I swear I will be avenged on you. Well, they didn't do anything to him. They killed somebody else. This isn't, you killed people I care about. It's, wow, you've made me mad again. So I'm going to come after you. But then too, after that, I'll quit. Samson is not at all seems like somebody who's using these supernatural gifts of, that God has given him to save God's people. He's just after his own vengeance, even in just saying, no, yeah, I'll stop after that, which is also foolish to think that this isn't going to keep escalating higher and higher. So they respond. They send these Israelites to capture him, and 3,000 men of Judah show up. This is an army. But this army isn't here to fight the Philistines. It's there to serve the Philistines. And they asked Samson, hey, what is this you've done, dude? What are you doing? And how does Samson respond? Well, I'm just doing what they did to me. As they've done to me, so I have done to them. And their question is an important one too. It's saying, Samson, don't you realize what you're doing here, buddy? You're making, this is all very precarious for us. Okay, these are the lords. They're in charge. They're the leaders. They can do whatever they want to us poor Israelites. And when you start rebelling and doing all this stuff, it's gonna, they're going to hurt us for this. Like, what, what, why are you doing this? What are you, what are you trying to get at? Don't you realize this could lead to war? And Samson just shrugs. He doesn't say, well, God has appointed me the judge of Israel. I'm here to save you. Let's go fight the Philistines. He doesn't say that. He doesn't invite them to come with him. He doesn't even see how God's using him at all. He's just saying, well, they made me mad and now I responded. And I'm going to keep responding until they stop. He's just using the gifts that God has given him for his own vengeance and vendetta. In fact, he wants Israel to stay out of it. He says, okay, just swear you won't attack me. And they go, yeah, sure. He says, okay, well, take me there and just stand by and don't do anything. So one of the only judges, you have a judge throughout this whole book, telling Israel to not fight their oppressors. And he'll do it. Not because he wants to, you know, show off God's power, but he's just purely selfishly focused. So they bind him and he kills a thousand Philistines by himself. Presumably while these men from Judah are just standing around watching Probably for a while. That would take some time, I imagine, for one person to kill a thousand. Especially if he's just using a single weapon. And again, he uses a dead body part. He again violates his Nazarite vow, touching freshly dead corpses. It's not just a bone. And he doesn't use it because it's the only thing nearby. He's got 3,000 soldiers that I'm sure if he said, Hey, let me have your sword. You know, yeah, sure, here you go. And even if not that, he kills a thousand other soldiers, presumably... All of them had weapons, I would assume. Maybe even you just said half of them had weapons. At any point, he could have stopped and picked up some of those and used those. But no, he is content to continue to just spit and mock God and violate his vows. All these weapons laying around, and he doesn't do any of it. And then at the end, what does Samson do in 16? He sings a song, and not a song of worship to how awesome God is that this miracle could happen. It's about how awesome Samson is. With the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps, with the jawbone of a donkey, I have struck down a thousand men. That's Samson's song. Sounds very different than the song that Deborah sang. If you remember weeks ago, back in chapter 4 and 5, when we looked at her, their song was all about how God had delivered them. This song's just about how strong and awesome of a fighter Samson is. It's not a song that we would sing on Sunday morning to worship God, I don't think. If we just put those lyrics up there and say, well, it's in the Bible, you go, ah, I don't know. That doesn't seem like it's very worshipful or God-focused, right? It's not. 
And then this thing with the gates is so weird. It's like it's out of place and it almost doesn't have a point, right? He's going to visit another prostitute, again, violating God's laws, not really caring. And they try and capture him, but he sneaks out. And he, so he goes up to their gates and he carries those away. Now these gates, it's not just like the door frame. They're at least two stories high, maybe three stories high. There's like guard rooms all around it. This is the, the key part of a city that has walls. It's like their mini castle is what Samson has. And he goes up to it and he just picks it up, you know, just kind of squats it, lifts it, and just starts walking away with it. And he walks quite a ways. It, it's, you know, we could debate how far exactly he walks. It seems like it's possible that he walks as far as 40 miles just carrying this. Or he just walks, you know, several, about a mile going up a hill. Just carrying this two-story thing, and then he just sets it down and leaves, and that's it. Well, that's weird. Why would you do that? Well, he's doing it just to show off. Because the gates is what keeps the city safe. If the gates are done, and you've taken the gates, even if you just open up the gates of a city, that's time for the army to come in and defeat your enemies. Samson doesn't kill anybody there. He's utterly uninterested in using this incredible gifts that God has given him for God's purposes or to save God's people. He's just, you know, showing off so that everyone can say, wow, did you see that dude carry those gates over there? That was pretty crazy. That's it. That's all Samson does. And Samson really, he's a picture of Israel here. What we see in the person of Samson throughout these four chapters is what we have seen Israel do throughout this entire book. What he does, plays out individually, Israel's playing out nationally. Israel is just very focused on themselves. They don't care about the gifts that God has given them. They don't care about using them to honor God. They care about using them just for themselves. The land that they are in, the very land that they live in, is God's gift to them. And they haven't had it very long. It should be fresh in their minds of what a miracle this is. If they don't view it as something they should worship God with, they can do whatever they want here. And much like Samson, Israel is just ignoring the laws of God. Ignoring the commands of God, ignoring what God wants them to do. And all the while they violate his laws, they worship other gods, they do whatever they want, and then they still kind of pretend to follow God. And just like Samson, they only call out to God when they need him. There's only two times we see Samson pray. Let alone pray, there's only two times we see Samson use God's name, and both times is when he thinks he's dying. This first one here, he, he, at kind of 18 at the end of 15, he's very thirsty. And he calls out to God, you know, you've granted this salvation. He's acknowledging, okay, like, I only was able to do this because of you, God. That's good. And, you know, now I'll die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised, as if Samson has cared at all about being among people who are uncircumcised and not followers of God. He spent his entire life being among the uncircumcised and the Philistines. But now, it's, you know, he's pretending that he really cares about God's law. And his prayer is even so selfish, and yet God in His grace, He answers Samson. He splits open a rock, works a miracle, and water pops out. He drinks, his spirit is revived, and then he names it. This is something that happens all the time in the Old Testament, right? God works a miracle, an angel shows up, God speaks, and somebody builds an altar or they name the place. And, the, and you, you always have to go down to the footnote. I do too because my Hebrew is, you know is rough. I always have to look it up and see, well, what did they name it? And it's usually something like God who split the rock. Or the God who sees me, as Hagar named the place where God showed up. They, they always have to do with God. And yet, so we look, well, what does Samson name this place? Well, it's the springs of him who called. It's not after the God who makes springs. It's not called the God who answers my cry. It's the springs after me who calls. 
names them after himself. And yet, that's just what Israel does, doesn't it? They call out, God, please save us, save us. Oh, man, these other gods that we really messed up, we shouldn't have worshipped them. God sends a judge, he saves them, and then the next thing they do is, well, we'll go worship those other gods. Maybe they weren't so bad. Thanks. Thanks, God. That's what Samson does. And yet, we're just like Samson and Israel too, aren't we? We use all of our stuff for ourselves so often. We, we think the gifts that God has given us are so we can show off, so everyone can see how great and wonderful we are. We think that the money God has given us is really for us. It's not for others. It's so we can have better houses and nicer vacations, not so that we can give more away to the poor among us. We think that, that everything is ultimately about ourselves. It's the trap that we fall into. But our gifts, the things that God gave Samson, weren't just so Samson could go around and talk about and use his great strength to do cool tricks so people could be impressed. It was for a purpose that God gave him. And the things that God gives us is so that we can use the things he has given us for his glory, for his purposes, and to serve his church and his people. And yet, so often, we don't. And when we use the things of God just for ourselves, like Samson, it ends in disaster. And we make a life of using all the things God has given us just for ourselves. It starts to make us think that maybe everything really is about us. Point number two, the second principle will help us end well is to remember that God is the secret to your success. God is the secret to your success. This next section in chapter 16 is all about Samson and Delilah. Right? And so kind of a summary of it, Delilah is paid, much like Samson's first wife. It's paid to find out the secret to Samson's success. What's the secret to his strength? All of this is kind of around that. And she begs and he gives her fake answers. And then it just keeps going. And probably by the third one, you're like, okay, man, like why are, we're reading this aloud. Like this just really seems like I'm reading the same thing again, but it's getting more ridiculous. And it finally goes. And then he gives in, tells her that his secrets, his Nazarite vow in his hair. So she cuts it, loses his hair and gets abandoned by God and finally captured. This passage is probably fairly well known, but it's not necessarily well understood. Right, it's a passage, I've often heard lessons and sermons about this passage, and usually it comes down to, well, men, we really need to be careful of women like Delilah. You know, because this is, this is all about the seductive power of women and, and this righteous man that is just goes off to the wayside because he should have just not listened to this nagging woman. That, that's what it's about. But we should know by now, right, that Samson is anything but an incredible, righteous man. He's not the victim here. He's frequently mistreating women, and he makes lots of habits of visiting prostitutes, just about every chance he can get, so it seems. I'm not saying Delilah is righteous in this passage, but I don't think this passage has anything to do with dangerous women. Said this passage is all about what really is the secret to Samson's strength? What is it? And this entire passage, they, they repeatedly ask, the Philistines delight in Samson, where does his strength lie? The Philistines think it must be a trick. No human being can do this. There's got to be a secret. It's like a magician when you see them doing something. How did they do that? There's some way they can do this. I know it. It's not just that he's hit the gym a lot. It's not just that he's really, you know, strong. It's got to be something else. And so they're willing to pay Delilah an absurd amount of money to get this. Again, they're going to pay him in silver. Pretty much any time you see silver show up in Scripture, it's almost always bad, especially if somebody's getting paid in silver. They're betraying somebody else. We've already seen this so many times just throughout Judges. But they're willing to pay her 1,100 pieces of silver. Which, okay, what does that mean? 
How much money is that? Well, in the next chapter, in chapter 17, we're going to see somebody who is offered 10 shekels a year for his annual salary. Seems to be enough for that person to live off of. Just 10. Okay, so 1,100 divided by 10, in case you're bad at math like I am, you have to look this up. It's about 110 years worth of salary that she's offered. And that's per Philistine lord. There's at least two of them, probably three. So let's just be, you know, let's be conservative. Let's say there's three lords, multiply that by three. 300 years worth of salary. That's pretty good. It's a lot of money. I think most people... If we were honest, someone offers that much money to find out somebody's secret, we would be nagging them to death as well because i got to figure out what that is. There's a popular show on Netflix right now that's all about the horrible depths that people will go to for absurd amounts of money. And so Delilah goes and she asks him, verse 6, Please tell me where your great strength lies, how you may be bound. How can someone subdue you? What is the secret? And Samson has an easy answer. What should his answer be, right? Oh, God. This strength supernatural. It doesn't have anything to do with me. God's given me this strength. You know, he doesn't have a lucky rabbit's foot that this is how I do it. He doesn't have a, well, you know, you just stretch beforehand and then it's amazing what you can do if you just stretch before you start doing stuff. That's not it. And I think the reason he never says that is because Samson doesn't really believe that his strength comes from God. He really thinks it comes from something else. He could have even told her about his Nazarite vow. Hey, before I was even born, God chose me. And he called me and said, you are going to be a Nazarite and you are going to be a judge. And so the only way I could ever lose my strength is just if God takes it from me. So you, gotta, you, you take it up with him. If he takes it away from me, then you, can, then you can bound me. He doesn't say any of that. He toys with her and gives her fake answers. He says first, well, it's bowstrings. And it really, it could be bowstrings. The Hebrew is a little unclear. Um, it also could be, you know, the tendons of animals. And that's why the thing before it's dried, so it could be again him touching undead animals because he has no problem violating his, his vows. And so she tries it and cries out, the Philistines are upon you, Samson, but doesn't break. Snaps the bowstrings, threads of flax, secret of his strength, not known. She's mad, try again. Oh, this time it's new ropes. Well, he's already been bound with two new ropes from all the Israelites, but this time they get more new ropes. Maybe that will work. So she's met, you know, yells... Philistine's upon you, breaks it again, and he's out. So she's mad again, and now he says it's about his hair, right? Well, if you, you braid it, which has got to be long, it's never been cut. Okay, I've had pretty long hair before, but if you go your whole life without cutting it, presumably at least 20 years, I guess maybe 30 with Samson, that's a lot of hair. So weaves it, traps it tight, but nope. Not again. And it just, it gets a little ridiculous kind of as you read it. It was just like, what, what is this? Why is Samson so dumb? Why is Delilah so dumb for following this? The Philistines got to be really tired of hiding in that room and then being disappointed again each time. Sure, Delilah, you got to figure it out this time. I believe it. Like, it's kind of funny just reading this. But the, the point is not that Samson is so dumb that he gave her the secret. The point is Samson is so dumb that he says all of this stuff instead of just saying, this is from God. God's a secret. God's why I have this strength. And so when he breaks down in 16, she pressed him hard with her words day by day and urged him and his soul was vexed to death and he told her all his heart. And he said to her, a razor has never come upon my head. This is in 1616. For I've been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If my head is shaved, then my strength, it's an interesting phrase, my, not God's, it's my strength will leave me and I'll be weak like any other man. 
Seems like he tells her the secret, or does he? I'm not really convinced that this actually is the secret. I think the secret isn't just that his hair, and man, now he's violated all of his vows, and so now God leaves him. I don't think that's exactly the case, because if you look at 1620, she cuts his hair, tells him again, hey, I really got it this time. They seem pretty convinced, so they, they bring the money with them. She says, Philistines are upon you, Samson, and he awakes from his sleep, and he says, I'll go out as all other times and shake myself free. He doesn't really seem to think that that's his secret either. He doesn't think it's true. Or maybe he just wonders. It almost seems like Samson's come to believe his strength doesn't have anything to do with God, that maybe he doesn't need him all. He's, I mean, why not? How often has Samson violated the laws of God? How often has he violated all of his Nazarite vows and God seems to bless him anyway? How often has he used all of his gifts and his strength for himself and doing whatever he wants and yet God still seems to come? And then he cries out to God for help and God still shows up and comes. So why wouldn't he come now? I can just keep living however I want to. And so his behavior, it makes me think, I, Samson seems to think he can still get out of this. When you look at the rest of the verse, but he did not know the Lord had left him. He didn't know the Lord had left him. It doesn't say he didn't realize that his hair was cut. If the secret was his hair, I think that would be what it says. The secret wasn't his hair, the secret was God. And Samson, this tells you how righteous he is too, or not righteous, he doesn't even know that God's presence has left because he's never noticed it in the first place when it was there. That's how unaware he is. The secret to Samson's strength, it's not a Nazarite vow. You can take one of those if you want. You can go read about it at number six, and you can take a Nazarite vow yourself and do that. I don't think that's going to get you as strong as Samson. Fairly confident. Because the secret's God. God gave him that strength. That's it. But Samson got it twisted. He started to think he could do it all without God. And it's dangerous when we start to assume that God's blessed us because we deserve it. It's dangerous when we start to assume that, man, God's really blessed me because maybe God didn't bless me. Maybe I did this. Maybe all the success is because I've worked really hard. Maybe because I was really smart. Maybe because I did what I was supposed to do. That's why I've got all this. I deserve this. In Israel, they, they fall into the same trap as Samson, as a nation. They don't think they need God. They got new gods. What do we need with the old God? We don't see them begging or repenting for forgiveness anymore. In fact, we won't really see it for the rest of the book. We don't see Israel acknowledging how much they need the Word of God in their lives. We don't see them making sacrifices, acknowledging their sin and how much they need God's forgiveness. They've decided they can make do without God. Can do it all on their own. And so often we do the same thing, I think. We, we think we don't really need Him. Think we can do it on our own, that our, our careers, our businesses have succeeded just because of us. Because we did it. Our gifts, my talent. My, I got lucky. I made this happen. I read in a funny story in a book this week. It was about a church. They had a strange model in their lobby. It was a massive ziggurat, which is basically a really old pyramid. Funny enough, too, that it's what we believe the Tower of Babel was made out of. So these authors came in and they saw this. Like, oh, that's weird. Why is a Tower of Babel in the lobby? Well, okay, it must be like a kid's thing. Maybe the kids are studying that. Maybe it's like the Bible school, Sunday school or vacation Bible school theme this year. And so, you know, I mean, why would you have a big monument to human arrogance in the house of God? That seems weird, right? But so they got closer and they realized it wasn't just a model. It was actually a massive fountain. 
And so then they were shocked, not just at how expensive that must be to have this big fountain in your church, but they got closer. On each stone on the foundation was a big plaque naming things that the church had achieved. Like their new buildings, their new attendance, their new achievements. They'd unwittingly built a model from the story of human arrogance as a physical representation of their own success and achievement. Now, I'm sure they had good intentions, right? They didn't think about it in that light. If they did, they wouldn't have built it. But it doesn't take us that long, does it, to start to leave God behind. To start thinking that maybe these things that God has blessed us with are really stuff that we have done. Start to think like Samson, maybe I really am this strong. Maybe it's not God, maybe it's me. And we start thinking that we've done that, we are in trouble. And it ends in disaster. Our last principle is the most significant. It's never too late for grace. It is never too late for grace. We find Samson at the end, he's completely ruined and at his lowest. He's a prisoner. He's working in a mill. He's pushing around giant rocks all day long, which is kind of a mockery of all of his strength. Oh, you're so strong. Here, push around a big rock every day to make us food. His eyes are gouged out. The man who's been spiritually blind his whole life is now physically blind. And then they throw a party to mock him, and he has to serve as their entertainment. The Bible doesn't tell us what that entertainment means, but I don't think he's singing them a song. I don't think he's putting on a skit or doing a dance for them. His entertainment is probably something horrible and demeaning. They're probably punishing him publicly, probably doing all the things to him that they did or that he did to them. But verse 22, it tells us the hair of his head began to grow back after it had been shaved. That's a beautiful poetic verse. The hair is coming back as a hint of grace. And now the Philistines aren't dumb. Okay, when I was younger and I read this, I thought maybe the Philistines were just really dumb and they forgot to shave him that day. And so then the hair grew back and now he's got his strength back because it's all tied to the hair, right? Maybe the guard just forgot, but that's not it. Samson's a blind prisoner. He has no control over anything that he does. The Philistines run his life. They notice. They can tell what's going on with his hair. Especially you got all those people around you think any of them notice, hey, his hair's growing back. Should we worry about that? Okay, they're not bothered by it at all. And the reason is because the Philistines don't understand the God of the Bible. The Philistines don't understand grace. They just understand deals. Because their gods make deals. Their gods make deals all the time. Sure, you make a vow and God gives you something, but you broke it, so God's done with you. You've betrayed your God. There's no going back from that. They cut his hair off and the deal is off. That means God's abandoned Samson. Pagan gods don't have mercy. The hair can grow back all at once, but the vow from womb to death, it's off because of Samson's sin. It's too, it's too late. But they don't know that it's never too late for God's grace. Verse 28, Samson calls to the Lord and he says, Oh Lord God, please remember me. Remember me. I love that, that phrase. Remember me and strengthen me, please, only this once, O God. He prays for God to remember him and for help. And he acknowledges here that this strength only comes from God. He's had plenty of time to think about it, I imagine. He's been plenty humbled and humiliated that I think now at the end he realizes, okay, I'm not really that strong. This is really only from God. The only way I'm getting this back is if God gives it to me. And his prayer reminds me of the prayer of the thief on the cross who also cried out to Jesus in his dying moments, remember me, Lord, when you come into your kingdom. So he says, God, remember me. 
This prayer isn't just, hey, God, don't forget me. The remembrance in the Bible is a call for God to act. It's remember me and then do something about it. God, remember me and then act as if you remember me. And so God does. God shows Samson grace and he responds to his prayer, even though his prayer is really not that great. His prayer is kind of selfish if you look closely at it. He's asking for vengeance. God, remember me, strengthen me, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. Even in his prayer of asking for grace, he's still got it twisted a little bit. He's not, it's not a good one. It's not a perfect prayer, and yet God hears it. God responds to it. God gives grace anyway. Why? Because God's grace isn't dependent on how good our prayers are. If God's grace was dependent on us praying the perfect, unselfish prayer, I think all of us would have a lot more unanswered prayers than maybe we already do. This is one reason I'm not the, the biggest fan of the sinner's prayer. I mean, it's not because there's anything wrong with it. There's not. It's good. But I, I don't think that God requires perfect magic prayers. And I don't want to give people even that image. You can pray and ask God for mercy. And it could be a pretty terrible prayer, actually. But if you are really genuinely asking God for mercy, He responds. God's grace doesn't require perfect faith. And God's grace is better than our bad prayers. We can honestly pray imperfect, poor prayers, and God hears it. And God shows grace. And He prays, and Samson grabs the two middle pillars on this hand, and he leans his weight against them on his right hand on one, and his left hand on the other. And with his arms outstretched, he says, Let me die with the Philistines. Bows with all of his strength, and the house falls down. And so the dead whom he killed at his death were more than all those he killed in his life. In his death, Samson's finally redeemed. Finally, working with God, he accomplishes more in that one moment than he has his entire life, doing all sorts of silly nonsense. And this moment is, I think, why Samson's mentioned in Hebrews 11 along the other heroes of the faith. Yes, he's deeply flawed. Yes, he's very unrighteous and he's pretty bad. But God's grace gets him at the end. At the end, he prays and begs for grace and God gives it. And God wasn't done with Samson. And God isn't done with Israel yet either. Judges is a rough book and it's about to get a lot rougher because after Samson's death, there's no more judges and things really go off the rails. There's only more evil and sin, but it's, Judges isn't the end of Israel's story. With how bad the book of Judges is, you would think it would be the last book in the Old Testament right before we wait for Jesus. And then God just wipes his hands and says, I'm done with y'all. Y'all are too messed up. Good luck. Figure it out on your own. But it's not at the end. It's still the beginning. It's still early in Israel's history. God has a lot more in store for his people. And that's not because they deserve it. It's not because they're great. It is just because of his grace. And it's never too late for his grace. God wasn't done with Israel and God's not done with you either. Whoever you are, there's grace for you. No matter how much of God's gifts you may have felt like you squandered, God can use you. No matter how deep your sin is, there's grace. No matter how far you have run from God or still keep running, there's grace. No matter how imperfect your prayers are, there's grace. As long as there's breath in your lungs, it's not too late for the grace of God. If you don't know Jesus, come and find grace. If you do know God's grace, but you've been running from it, stop, turn around, and come home 
and find it. Because it is never too late for the grace of God. This morning we've looked at these three principles. The, the first one being that our gifts are not for ourselves only. Be reminded that God is the secret to our success, nothing else. And finally, it's never too late for grace. Samson had really wonderful gifts, but he squandered most of it. But his story ends actually well. Why? Because he appealed to the grace of God. So how will your story end? Will your story end with grace? Let's bow our heads and pray, and I'll invite the worship team to come back up. Lord, I thank you for your grace. Lord, I thank you that you are a gracious God, a God who doesn't throw away people like Samson and Israel and me. Lord, that you continue to show grace to sinners. In fact, Lord, you, you only came to show grace to bad people. You didn't come to save good people because there aren't any. You came to save bad people. Now, Lord, I praise you. That's the kind of God that you are. Lord, would you help us to get a bigger, more grander vision of your grace? Lord, if there are people here who are listening later who don't know you, would you draw them to yourself? Lord, would you show them how beautiful and wondrous and how never-ending your grace is for all the sinners who come and ask for it? And Lord, for those of us who have walked with you for a long time or maybe even most of our lives, would you help us see too that we still need your grace? That we need you as much today as we did on the first day that we became a believer. Lord, help us all to end well. And would all of us, in the moments that we take our last breath, would we die depending on your grace and your grace alone. We pray this in your holy and precious name. Amen. And why don't you stand as we continue to worship our Savior through song. Amen. Let me leave you with this benediction from Hebrews 13. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good, that you may do His will, working in us, that which is pleasing to His sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. God bless you. Go in peace.